basis to understand the words of that song, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's cross, in the Savior's life? How is it that I, a sinner, fast bound in nature's night, enslaved to sin, under the authority of the ruler of this world, bearing my own guilt and shame and condemnation should be rescued by sovereign grace, to be made a child of God, to be seated in the heavenlies with Christ, to have every promise in him, yes and amen, to have the Holy Spirit give life and indwell and seal and enable to live this, this life of righteousness, stumbling, faltering, resting always in the finished work of Christ until we receive the fullness of that reward, the end and the fullness of our redemption when we see you face to face. This is grace. This is pure grace. And we sing with gratitude and we look forward always to the encouragement we receive from your word, but also particularly in baptism where we bear testimony to this saving grace, individually, souls plucked out of the fire, as it were, and made reconciled to God through Christ. So as we consider this morning these testimonies, and particularly from your word, what is behind them, which is your sovereign work of granting life to the sinner, may you refresh and teach and instruct and encourage our hearts. And we pray this in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for us, the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As you know, we are this morning uh, going to have an abbreviated uh, message so we can have time to hear these three testimonies in the water of baptism. And it's always exciting for us. We always love opening God's word together first, but uh, particularly to hear how that that truth of God's word, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, was applied um, to the lives of those to whom God has shown his grace, his saving grace. Uh, this morning, we're particularly going to consider baptism as a testimony to the work of regeneration. Baptism as a testimony to the work of new life, of being born again, as it were, born from above. Now, that phrase is not uncommon, maybe a little less common now than at other points in our history, but certainly among those who profess the name of Christ, uh, many would want to add on a descriptor, namely that they are a born-again Christian, that I am a born-again Christian. However, if you were to look just statistically at the lives and the beliefs of many of those who make that claim, it would put a question mark in your mind. It would seem, because so much would not match to what we read in Scripture, and yet it is with confidence that many claim to be a born-again Christian. And the reality is, if anyone is a Christian in truth, they are born again. They have received life from God, spiritual life from God, uh, by the Holy Spirit. Now, the theological term for being born again is regeneration, as many of you might be familiar with, but it's not only a theological term, it is also a biblical term. To be born again, or regeneration, excuse me, is used two times in Scripture, one time it's used in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19, 28, and it speaks of a time of refreshing, the time of regeneration, that time when there is a renewal of the earth, where Christ is on the earth, establishing his kingdom, ruling over Israel and those who have been engrafted into those promises of Israel, namely Gentiles. 
It is used one other time spiritually to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. And that's Titus chapter 3, 5. And he says, you were washed with the washing of regeneration. And it is that inward renewing and cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. And so those are the two times that it's used, the actual word. Although the term is only used twice, there are a variety of ways that Scripture talks about this work of God in giving new life to a sinner. Let me give you just some. In 2 Corinthians 5, and many of these you'll hear even mentioned in the testimonies uh, this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul refers to it as being a new creation, a new creation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says that we have been made alive together with Christ, made alive together with Christ. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, we have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In 1 Peter 1.3, he says, we have been born again. In Romans 6.13, he says, we've been brought from death to life. In 2 Peter 1.4, he says, we become partakers of the divine nature. In the Old Testament, one of the most uh, well-known references to regeneration is to be circumcised of heart. Is to be circumcised of heart. So it's described in a variety of ways. What does it mean? Well, in short, it means this, or it refers to this. It is an inner work of God the Holy Spirit in which he implants the principle of new life in a dead sinner. Now, we'll unfold that a bit in a passage we'll look at this morning. But it is an inner work of God the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is something he does within the sinner. It is a mysterious work. It is a life-giving work inside the sinner in which he implants the reality of spiritual life, out of which flows faith and repentance and the fruit of new desires and new loves and following Christ. It is a sovereign work of God, and it is manifest by the fruit that it produces, namely what I just mentioned, faith in Christ, new spiritual desires and hungers and longings, new spiritual abilities to love Christ, to understand Scripture and to put to death sin. And baptism is the public testimony of those who have experienced this work of God, who have experienced this work of God in truth. We have believers' baptisms. It's not merely a baptism of those who want to be called a part of the church. It's not merely a a baptism of those who say, I like this group of people, I want to, and this is what I need to do to be a part of them. It is to say that those who are bearing testimony in baptism are declaring that they have placed their faith in Christ, that they have seen the glory of Christ, they have come to trust in Christ, and they have committed their lives to him. All of that being a fruit of God's work in them. Now, there's three ways... Uh, Three big categories that we'll look at this. One is the necessity of the new birth, the nature of the new birth, and the new life of the new birth. And we'll look at those very briefly. And we're going to do that through a passage that is familiar to many, namely John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Now we'll be focusing primarily on the first eight verses or so, but we'll be uh, referencing the entire chapter. And we're going to do that in about 30 minutes or less. So you know... That if we're going to try to get to the whole chapter, we're going to be pretty limited in terms of what we can say. And so there's obviously much, much more. And it's very hard always not to say things. It's much harder than to say things um, because there's so much there. But we're going to look at this broadly just to consider this reality of new life through the conversation that Jesus has with a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Let's begin by reading the first eight verses of this chapter, and then we'll look at it a bit more closely. Uh, Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 3. 
Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's look first, then, at the necessity of the new birth, the necessity of the new birth in verses 1 through 3. And the first evidence of this is the recognition that this new birth, this need of every person cannot be attained through human effort cannot be attained through human effort. Now, the context leading into this conversation is that Jesus began revealing himself and his person as the promised Messiah at the wedding of Cana. He revealed himself to the disciples, to the ones who knew what he asked about the water, to his mom. It was the first of the signs that he did. John takes us from that account into Jesus entering into the temple and also in chapter 2, and he clears it out. He bears witness and testimony to the apostasy of the nation, to the moral ineptitude of the nation and corruption by clearing out the temple and saying, this house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Also declaring that he is the Messiah who is coming to the nation to cleanse it, to lead it. And then we have an interesting account in verses 23 through 25. And it says, When he was in Jerusalem and Passover and was doing and teaching, that many believed in his names, observed the signs, but Jesus was not believing or entrusting himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of man. And he knew that their witness to him and their acknowledgement of who he is fell short of what God required. And so it says that, Even though they were believing in him, he was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and he did not meet any to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. From there, we come into this account with Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, and that is a significant identification He was a man of the Pharisees. Now, this was not a casually committed religious man. This was not a casually committed religious leader. He was of the elite class of the religious influencers and prestige. Now, the Pharisees were a rather small group in in ancient Judaism or first century Judaism, numbering, according to one historian, about 6,000, one ancient historian. But they were wielded an influence far beyond their numbers. And they were really, in many ways, the shapers of much of first century Judaism. And really, after the Judaism that we know today after the destruction of the temple. But these were elite religious leaders. They were men who evangelized. 
They went out and proselytized in Matthew chapter 23. They studied scripture. They meticulously followed religious devotion. They kept externally pure lives. They held positions of authority. And many of them were even sincere, like Nicodemus here. And yet, he is outside the kingdom of God. He is outside the kingdom of God. And so he comes to a man, this religiously committed man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he tells him, essentially, through this conversation, that aside from all of your attainments, all of the recognition that you have among men, you do not yet know God. His religion was inadequate to be, make him a member of the kingdom. And so was his knowledge. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now again, this is a man who knew scripture. Later he will be called the teacher of Israel. Here he's recognizing that he knew something of Christ. He knew something of his teaching. He knew something of his works of power. He knew something of his ministry to say that there is a distinction with you from all the others. God is clearly with you. God is clearly with you. And yet with all of that acknowledgement, again, he's still with someone who Jesus will identify as being outside of the kingdom of God. Even though he acknowledged that God was with him, he did not yet understand who Christ was. He admired him, but he did not believe in him. He's still outside of the kingdom of God. And this is not unlike many in the church today or many others of certainly different heretical groups and some who acknowledge Jesus as a good teacher, Islam, who acknowledge Jesus as an exalted being, Mormons and JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe secularist people who acknowledge that Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a great and important individual in the history of humanity, but he certainly is not God. It could even be true of many who are in the church who acknowledge Jesus as being God and have a right doctrine of him. They say he is the God in flesh. He is the one to be served. And yet they too are devoid of a true knowledge of God's salvation. Just as Nicodemus was, Jesus warned about this in many places. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, which we'll read next week. And... Matthew 27, 21, we're familiar with that. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And I'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. In an Old Testament sense, that's where Nicodemus is. He named the name of God. He did many things in the name of God. And yet Jesus is going to uh, identify him as being outside of the kingdom of God, outside of the saving grace of God. This is a universal condition of men. Now, the fact that Nicodemus, a devout, seemingly sincere, and knowledgeable religious leader, was outside the kingdom of God, was spiritually blind, highlights a profound reality. And this is one of the main points, actually, that we have to grasp. This leader, this religiously sincere and accomplished person, is immediately answered by Jesus with these words, who cuts right through everything that... Nicodemus stood for, cuts right through the position of authority and religious knowledge with which Nicodemus approached him, and he simply says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of God. And in one sentence, Jesus destroys everything that Nicodemus assumed, everything that Nicodemus trusted in. He completely decimated everything that Nicodemus found confidence in, everything that any religious person finds confidence in when resting in their religious accomplishments. He destroyed it. He obliterated it. He says, Nicodemus, you're coming to me as a Pharisee, but you're coming to me as one who is dead to God. Moreover, he requires of Nicodemus, although this is not a command, but he is a statement of what is required. He says to Nicodemus, and he lays before him a condition of entrance into the kingdom of God, which Nicodemus himself could not do. He couldn't produce it. It's something that only God can give and God can do. This is absolutely devastating to human pride and everyone who entertains the secret thought and confidence within their own heart that somehow God will see the goodness of their heart, the goodness of their true intentions in life and will receive them into his kingdom. He obliterates that. None would have more attainment than here in Nicodemus and later that famous Pharisee Paul who was also outside of God's saving grace. And yet, here he is. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. You stand before me as a leader of my people, and yet you are outside of a knowledge of God. He did not see the heinous reality of his sin and its corrupting power within him. He did not truly recognize and understand the grace of God. And so Jesus brings that out in this one simple and direct statement. He says, you must be born again. Now, just as a side note here, this could be born again or it could be born from above. It doesn't really matter how you translate the word. That translation is important, but each idea encompasses the other and the word could mean, could be rightly taken by either. If you say born again, it is simply to put emphasis on the fact that there needs to be a second kind of birth. It's emphasizing that a fleshly birth is not enough. There needs to be a spiritual birth. If we translate it as born from above, which I would tend to do, it's emphasizing the origin of this birth. In other words, that it comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But each encompasses the other. To be born again is to be born from above and vice versa. The idea is you need something radical to happen inside of you. You need something monumental to happen inside of you. To say that is to say that this is a comprehensive indictment on the radical nature of our fallenness into sin. To use a word that some are familiar with, our depravity. The corruption of sin on the human soul. To say that to Nicodemus and to say to any person that you need to be born again is to say the entirety of your being is corrupted by sin. Your mind is corrupted by sin. Your affections are corrupted by sin. Your will is corrupted by sin such that nothing you can do can free you from this corruption or even cause you to rightly want to be freed from this corruption, which is an even deeper indictment. There's no part of this man or any man that is not held in bondage to sin's enslaving power. It is at the same time a testimony that we are not born innocent and then learn bad things, which some throughout the history of the church would say. We're not born sick, 
spiritually weak, but able at some point to make the right decisions and turn our life around and to believe in God if we would recognize it. It's not to say that there is something still good in us that is able to discern God and his work in the world and to seek him. There's nothing that can change this condition. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He says to us, you need to be born again. The idea of birth encompasses the idea of life, right? When a child is born into this world, a new life enters into this world. That life existed in the womb of the mother. It was a person. It was a human being. It was a life. But it enters into this world, and the life enters into our experience of this earth. And so that imagery then pictures what happens to one spiritually. But to say that means that there was an absence of life. In Scripture, it doesn't merely say that there's an absence of life. It refers to this condition as spiritual death, a spiritual death. Jesus referred to this. If you remember in Matthew chapter 8, someone wanted to follow him, and he said, let me go back and bury my parents. And he said, what? Let the dead bury their own dead, Right? What do you mean? Dead people didn't rise up to perform a funeral. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. You come and you follow me. But this is most plainly set forth in the book of Ephesians. He says, and remember when he says this, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to those who are actually now in Christ and he's saying this is what you were, this is what you now are by God's doing. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Do you see the total corrupting power of sin there? He says you were dead. In other words, you were unable to respond. How were you dead? What was the mark of this death? What was the character of this death? It is that you walked in your mind according to the course of this world. In other words, as the world thought, as the world reasoned, as the world stood on its own standard of truth, you followed along. You followed along with it. In this world that was Influenced by the prince of the power of the air, Satan and his demonic forces. And you lived among them and not only did you live in your mind according to the thinking of this world, the reasoning of this world, but he says you also indulged your lust of your flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Your mind was corrupted by sin. Your affections were corrupted by sin to love things that God hates to love things that are contrary to righteousness, to follow things that are contrary to truth. And your will was utterly enslaved by these corrupt desires. And as such, you were an object of God's wrath, not God's favor. And then he said the famous words, the precious words, but God, but God in mercy did something. He hasn't gotten to the but God part here with Nicodemus. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You reside now with all of your religion in a condition of spiritual death. 
You could say if Nicodemus were to die right then, he would be excluded from the life of God forever, as anyone who dies in that state. So this is a comprehensive picture. It's a statement about our condition outside of Christ and in sin. It is utterly corrupting. We're just hitting this quickly, but this has been an indictment of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Later, he's going to say, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do your, the desires of your father. And he says, this is why you cannot hear me, because you are not from God. And so, this is the indictment to Nicodemus. You must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? Nicodemus certainly saw the kingdom of God as he understood scripture. He would have understood the Old Testament teaching on it. He saw the kingdom of God as it was present in Christ. He says that he, nobody can do these things unless God is with him. He was aware of his works, aware of his signs, aware of his teaching. He saw it in that sense. He's not talking about physically seeing the kingdom of God. He's saying you cannot perceive the kingdom of God until this thing happens to you, the new birth. You can't perceive it. You can see all kinds of signs. You can hear all kinds of teaching, but you will be blind to the true intent and the true meaning. There will be no spiritual discernment in you to be able to rightly understand and respond when you hear these testimonies this morning, these are not going to be people who are living in a totally godless world who all of a sudden one day had the gospel come to them and then whew, a light went off. These are people who grew up in the church. Many of us can identify with that as well. Who heard the gospel many times and yet it had no power on our soul. It had nothing within it to produce worship to Christ. Nothing. It had nothing within it to humble our souls. It had nothing in it to renew our mind. It had nothing in it to shape our affections. It had nothing in it to affect our wills. We did not perceive within it. We did not see the revelation of God and his glory in it. And so he says to Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God apart from this reality of the new birth. Again, many hear scripture, read scripture, attend church, serve in church faithfully, and do not perceive spiritually and discern the glory of Christ, the nature of their sin, or the significance of Christ's work. This is repeated throughout. Let me just stay in John and say, in verse 39, he says, speaking of the same class of people as Nicodemus is in, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It's these that bear testimony about me. But you are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life, so you remain in death, even though you have the scriptures. He says, Nicodemus, you cannot see, you cannot see and perceive the kingdom of God until you are born again. So that is the necessity of this, the spirit, the new birth. It is necessary. Apart from this spiritual reality that God must affect, we would never enter the kingdom. Let's note quickly, secondly, the nature of this new birth. What is the nature of it? He says in verse four, Nicodemus responds out of his ignorance, out of his blindness, out of his lack of discernment. How can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit 
is spirit. I mean, note just simply here, he says that he is not referring to something as crass and silly as some kind of second human birth. He's referring to something that happens within the sinner, within the sinner, something that he should have been well aware of, Nicodemus. He's saying it's something that happens within your very soul and within your very heart. Now, there's a variety of ways that people understand water here, particularly. Obviously, we don't have time to go into this. I'll just mention them to you. Some understand water as referring to baptism. Some are some in different, each of these have subcategories. But baptism, some have referred to water as a natural birth, and some understand it to be metaphoric in terms of a spiritual cleansing. Well, it can't refer to natural birth, or is highly unlikely, because that's simply not how the Jews commonly spoke about it. And John himself spoke about uh, natural birth in verse 13 of chapter 1, and he referred to it as the blood, and it doesn't really make sense in this context. It doesn't likely refer to baptism, because they, Nicodemus would not have understood new covenant baptism, and Jesus is directly linking the work of the Spirit to this water and this and the spiritual work of being born of the Spirit, which is not something that John does with baptism, nor any other writer of Scripture. There are a variety of reasons. So what does he mean? What is he saying? What does he mean here that Nicodemus should have understood? It is clearly the third option. He's saying, Nicodemus, you should understand what I'm saying to you. Why? Because you know the Old Testament Scriptures. Because you're already recognizing my person and the evidence of the Spirit in my person and my ministry as something that at least piques your curiosity about the coming of the kingdom. So Nicodemus, if you know that, if you see that in me, if your curiosity is piqued and you know the Old Testament scriptures, you should be able to associate these things with what God promised. And what did God promise? Well, just that. He summarizes it in the book of Ezekiel, verse chapter 36. Again, I'm only going to mention this for time's sake. But God is speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. He's saying, the nation of Israel, you have profaned my name among the nations. You are utterly enslaved to your sin. You have rejected my righteousness. You have turned your back on me. But for my own glory... And so that he says in verse 23, the nations will know that I am the Lord and I'm going to prove myself holy among you. And what is he going to do? He's going to gather them together and he's going to give them life. This is going to be in the future. And how does he describe that? In verse 26, he says this, once I'm going to remove and cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statues and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I will, I will, I will. Why? So that the nations will know I am God and I am holy and I am the one who do these things. Nicodemus should have understood that, that, but again, he was blind to it. He was blind to it. But again, even the Old Testament anticipation was a humbling reality that Whatever was going to happen and God bringing about the promise of his kingdom was going to be something that God did. It wasn't going to be something the nation did. And so notice secondly then here, it is an inner work and it is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Jesus describes this. He says, do not be amazed 
that I said to you, you must be born again. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes and from where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does he mean? How do you know where the wind is blowing? You see the effects of it, right? You see the, you see the leaves rustling. You can feel it on your skin. You can see the little flags that are sometimes on the top of a house that are blowing one direction or the next. You see what it produces. He's saying, Nicodemus, this is how you know where the Spirit is moving and what the Spirit is doing. Like the wind that blows, so will be the movement of the Holy Spirit. You will see the effects of his work. Now, the helplessness of man to do this is evident already in the very terms that he uses that you must be born. Nobody in this room initiated your own birth. It's something that happened to you. We joke with our girls sometimes and say, you know, I'll tell them, I said, you know, the reason that we had girls was so that you'd be sweet to me. You know, so you'd be sweet to us. Obviously, that's humor uh, because we we had no ability to do that, no ability to choose that. And nor did they in terms of their gender or anything else about their life or any of us, is something that was acted upon us. In the same way, he says, though it is when the moving of the Spirit, you are acted upon with the imagery of of a birth, of a new birth. It's something that God does to you. And there's a point of interest here that, well, just note that it's something that God does to you. You must experience it, and you know that you've experienced it when you see the effects of it. Imagine how humbling this is to us. You know, you hear sometimes people say, well, you know, I'll believe on Jesus later. You know, I kind of want to live my life. I want to experience all the good things in life. A lot of problems with that. One, defining sin as good is foolish to begin with, to say I don't understand the gospel. Number two is you don't control that. God controls your life. God gives life and he takes life away. He could do that tomorrow. And then what will you do? No, it humbles us and says, no, I must plead with God to do in me what I can never do. And so it's humbling. It points for our need for God to do his work. It destroys our false confidence. But let me note just lastly here quickly. What is the evidence of this new life then that he says? What is the wind? What is the evidence of the wind blowing and those who are born of the Spirit? Let me mention two main categories. What is the evidence of regeneration? What is the evidence of the life-giving power of the Spirit? It is this, first of all, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. It is to behold who Christ is in God's testimony of him and to say, yes, that is who he is. This is who I am. And I believe in him. I entrust myself to him. I lose my life that I may gain his. Listen to how he says this. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? We speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How will you believe if I tell you even deeper spiritual truths, even deeper realities about my person and my work and about the kingdom? 
which you are excluded from. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, which he automatically would have understood from the Old Testament, was a messianic statement. The Son of Man who came from heaven down to you. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is the first evidence is that you would believe God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life and have entrance into the kingdom. Whoever does not believe in him is not judged, or whoever does not, uh, believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Why were all of the works of Jesus done? Why was all of the teaching of Jesus done? Why was ultimately even the resurrection of Christ done? So that you might believe. Why were these things written in the Gospel of John and the rest of Scripture? He says specifically in John that you might believe. So what is the first testimony is that you would believe, that you would read Scripture and you would believe it. You would say Christ is exactly who he says he is right here. God is exactly who he says he is right here. Truth is exactly what God says it is right here. As he says later, Christ is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Believe. There's only two options. Those who stand under God's judgment through unbelief and those who stand under God's saving grace by belief. Those who have spiritual death because of unbelief and those who have spiritual life because through faith they are united to Christ in whom that life is revealed and resides. Those are the only two options. What is the evidence of the wind blowing? That when Christ is revealed, the heart responds in faith and worship. That he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is, as well, the only provision for the atonement of our sin. Again, I'll just have to mention this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Just in short... Go back and read Numbers 21. God disciplined his people by sending fiery serpents among them. Then he commanded Moses to put a golden serpent on a pole to erect it. And everybody who was bitten and suffering from the fiery serpents would look on that out of obedience to God's command, out of trusting in God's command, and they would be healed. He says, in a similar way, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He uses that language in chapter 8, verse 28, in which the Son of Man is to be lifted up. Lifted up how? Lifted up on a cross, which the rest of the gospel is going to unfold, particularly the last. Chapters, the Son of Man was him who will be lifted up on a cross, who will be crucified, who will accomplish exactly what John the Baptist announced at the beginning of the ministry, or public ministry of Christ, namely that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will be lifted up as a sacrifice. And as he is lifted up as a sacrifice... It will be for all of the world to see that this is the Son of God. 
This is the Son of God. This is the sacrifice by which we may be saved. This is the righteousness by which we may stand before God. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. And everything outside of Him is death and condemnation and destruction and emptiness. Everything in Christ is life and blessing and hope and promise. That's what we must believe and that's what we must embrace. And at the end of the day... The ultimate testimony to the reality of it is that Christ is obeyed. That he's obeyed. Let me just give you one passage. It speaks for itself. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But... He who practices the truth comes to the light so his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God, as having come from the reality of a relationship with God, of faith in God, of life in God, eternal life. And then he puts it more succinctly in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The end of the day... It is not only saying the right things about Christ, but it is demonstrating in your life that there has been a transformation such that at the deepest desire of who you are and out of faith in him, you want to follow him. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. It's simple. So the question of where you are in this, are you a Nicodemus or someone else? And as you'll hear, have you experienced the transformation that you'll hear in these testimonies is do I, at the deepest part of who I am, believe the testimony about Christ? Does what God reveals about Christ produce in me a desire to worship him and a desire to follow him and a desire to trust him? Not perfectly, but is that what I wrestle with? That what I identify with? That what I believe? And do I actually obey him in my life? not merely externally, not to gain confidence before others, not to check off a life that God will accept, but because I love him who has accepted Christ on my behalf, who has provided Christ a righteousness that I could never have on my behalf. And I do. I fight against sin. Why? Because Christ freed me from sin. I fight to be unstained by this world. Why? Because I belong to the world that's coming where righteousness dwells. Why? Because of who Christ is. That's why I do what I do. This is the evidence that one has been brought from death to life, from blindness to sight, from being deaf to hearing, from trusting in self to trusting in Christ. And that's what we exalt in this morning with these testimonies. But my question to you as you listen to them, have you experienced this new birth? Have you experienced it? Have you experience the reality of this transformation that you could say these things are true of me. And you say, well, what do I do if God has to do this? You cry out to him. You cry out to him. You ask him to do what you cannot do and you cry out and you don't let him go until you are sure that you've come to faith in Christ. You hold on to him. You wrestle with him. You argue according to his promises. You fight sin. You get help. And you don't let a hold of God as Jacob who wrestled with God all night until you bless me until I know that I know Christ, until I know that I am attached to Christ, until I know that my sins have been forgiven. That's what you do. And that's what many of us here have done. And that's what we'll hear this morning. So there's John coming up. And...
He'll lead us in a song. And as you're coming up, let me pray briefly, and then we'll get ready. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Pray that we would rejoice together in that testimony of that grace that we'll hear now. To your everlasting glory, we pray. Amen.